Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Roaring Twenties Radio on Soho Radio. I'm Emma Rose and I am joined today by Farah Nayeri, who um, is an author, um, she's a musician and she's a journalist and she has published this book, which is called Takedown, Art and Power in the Digital Age. I'm not going to spoil the cover for you. We already gave the cover a shout out, but have a look on our socials or Google the book. It is the smartest cover. It is fantastic. Um, may I may I introduce the name of actually of that cover designer? Oh, please. Yes, his name is Richard Oriolo. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, he's brilliant. Yeah, fantastic idea. And Farah, I wanted to ask you firstly, just you cover a lot of different art events, subjects, you know from I mean one amazing article you did recently on human zoo exhibition and so these big big topics that um and you cover them in this universal way international publication so what was it about this topic that made you think this is the book that I'm going to write so I yeah I write for the for the New York Times uh culture pages and um Actually, I'm not the one who picked the topic of the book. Uh, it was almost chosen for me by a very smart agent in New York who read an article I'd written. I wrote an article for the newspaper about how Gauguin was being perceived in the Me Too era. Um, it's an idea, actually, believe it or not, that came to me a couple of years earlier um, when I was interviewing Kehinde Wiley in London for a show he was having, a gallery show. And Kehinde um, obviously thinks outside the box and he thinks differently from me you know I grew up in France or lived there a long time and I was always you know having this sort of conventional adoration for people like Gauguin and still do I mean I think you know his paintings are they knock me out um but you know Kehinde said yeah I mean I love Gauguin I truly have a great a fondness and passion for him but you know he's a kind of problematic and he said and he's creepy as Used it, and then he used a four-letter word, um, and he was just talking about the creepiness of Gauguin, because we were just coming into the Weinstein scandal that was just uh. breaking, and Kehinde was like, "Yeah, I really feel like I want to go back to Tahiti and revisit Gauguin, using these sort of sort of twenty-first-century spectacles and." Because he was sort of in his mind, I guess, feeling like Gauguin was a little bit Weinstein-esque in the fact that he had married, quote unquote, 
a couple of 13, 14-year-old girls, all the while being married to a Danish woman and having five children on the European continent. So he was doing all of this in Tahiti. Anyway, so I had this in my head and I thought, I'm going to cover this um, National Gallery show of Gauguin portraits with those eyeglasses or spectacles on. I'm going to go in with that view and see how they're tackling it. And I expected them to sort of sweep the whole issue of Gauguin and little girls under the carpet. Mm. And they didn't. They actually, on the main wall, they had this huge text saying Gauguin had sexual relations with 13 and 14 year old girls. He took advantage of his status as a colonial, French colonial um, uh, functionary or whatever you want to call him. And um, and I wrote a story and I spoke to a lot of art historians, many of them women, who said it was time to actually show Gauguin, yes, but also, quote, bring out the dirty stuff. And so that went kind of viral. It went viral all over the place. The French were quite offended. They hadn't actually read the piece. They thought I was saying cancel Gauguin because the headline said, is it time to cancel Gauguin? And... Um, Italians were also, you know, some some Europeans were objecting, but then North America, New Zealand, Australia, you know, all around the world, there were. I was invited on radio stations, and people were like, "Oh, very intrigued by this idea of revisiting Gauguin." And this very smart New York agent called Ross Harris, he approached me and he said, "How would you like to write a, a sort of lengthier book about contextualizing art?" You know. Um, and then, as you were writing the book. It's almost like that happening, that going viral, that conversation coming out of that article has become, it's almost like a, a wave, a ripple effect, yeah. whereby these conversations have not gone away. It's almost like um, that was the beginning. And now we are still talking about labelling, history, yeah. narratives and censorship from mm. both sides. What I thought was really interesting about your book is you talk about the two sides of censorship. You talk about art, you know, being censored, taken away, really restricted, and the power of the image. And then we come to now where, I don't know if you agree, mm -hmm. but it's almost like art's getting its own back slightly, mm -hmm. do you think? Um, how do you mean getting its own back? I feel like the art world, maybe we're coming, we're at a time where visual represent because of the uh, internet and everything, I think it's very powerful. Yeah. So I think people in charge, gatekeepers and people in charge of visual kind of um, representation are saying no. Or people, artists that are very famous, powerful, respected are saying no. No to? No, you can't, if you can't take my art, if you take this person's money, like Ryan right, Golden. Yeah. Um, you can't show my art if yeah. you show art by this person or yeah. if you take... It comes back to money a lot of the time. But again, if you have this name on the building, I'm sorry, that's it. Yeah. And, um, and even if it doesn't end in the actual censure of somebody, mm -hmm. it, can, it creates a big debate and the debates tend to kind of run and run. Yeah. And I think the point is that it does, as you say, because we live in democracies uh, in the West. Um, I'm from Iran. Um, sadly, the word democracy doesn't apply to where I'm from. Um, and in these democracies, I think that um, censorship and censure don't really happen. You're not going to see a museum director go and take down a painting because someone demonstrated in front of it. They're going to stand up for it when there's, um, you know, uh, 
sort of protests around the uh, painting of Emmett Till by Dana Schutz at the Whitney, that painting remains hanging on the wall and um, other examples. But the point being, museums are now self-censoring in a way or being extremely mindful of all of these coefficients that before they were mindful of, but sort of in a kind of episodic way. Every now and again, they would say, okay, we should do something about diversity. And this is told to me by people who were involved. They would get committees together, sit around the table and say, yes, yes, diversity, it's really great. But then it wouldn't really be entrenched. The the diversity, um, you know, like there are these artists that, you know, you kind of like uh, gobsmack to realize it took a very long time to kind of show. Um, And so the point being, women artists were pretty much invisible, really. Yeah. I mean, women solo shows, artists who were not white European males. I mean, all of these people were shunted to one side and now... Everyone is sort of foregrounding them because the museums who don't do them, do, do, who don't do that, um, actually suffer. They're, you know, yeah. they they become like the odd ones out. And there is, I think, um, appetite for it, public appetite. Yeah, absolutely. People like the shows. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, for instance, um, Soul of the Nation, that exhibition at Tate Modern, or The Black Model, which was at Musée d'Orsay, a show of all the black figures in French or, you know, 19th century art. There were many. For instance, in Manet's Olympia, there's a black woman who is bringing her bouquet of flowers. And these figures were always overlooked. They were always kind of like, you know, faire valoir, as we say in French, sort of there to make the main protagonist of the of the painting look good. But this exhibition actually turned the tables and said, let's look at who these black figures were. And that show was a revolutionary show. And so was Soul of the Nation. And it brought a lot of people to the museum who hadn't been to the museum before. And it also, in my view, I think probably contributed to the promotion of the head of Musée d'Orsay to the Louvre. The oh. Louvre has this new, the first woman director in its history, and she's the woman who put on Black Model. And my um, impression is that that exhibition had a lot to do with it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think you're going to read us a little section of your book now, aren't you? Yes, I'm hoping that, that I'm not going to bore you too much. So I, I really don't like reading because I find... I mean, I, you know, but here we go. Um, The art world today, while still a work in progress, is a better, richer, and more interesting place than it was before. True, some of the changes are motivated by cynicism, damage control, and fear of bad publicity. Nonetheless, arts programming has become less staid, repetitive, and blockbuster-led. Audiences are faced with a wider and more relevant range of options, and they're visiting museums and arts institutions in ever greater numbers. Not only have museums not lost audiences in the process, they have gained new ones. There are those who are suspicious of this new age of inclusivity, who write it off as a burst of political correctness and view the beneficiaries as second-rate talents brought in to fill diversity quotas. Yet in the vast majority of cases, the artists emerging from oblivion and getting solo museum shows should have done so a long time ago. They have been unfairly underestimated for far too long. Thank you. And um, now we're going to have, because Farah's also a pianist, 
And um, now we're going to play a track. This is Para Africa by Alfredo Rodriguez. And this was performed live in Paris. By me, not yes. by Rodriguez. No. <laughs> <laughs> At Sal Coro. In... Uh, Sal Corto, yeah. And um, I wondered also if you could tell us where the recording device is was placed for this yeah. particular show. So can I also name the three other musicians? Because I have Please. a... I have a band, so-called. We get together very, you know, once a year, once every two. I mean, you know, these guys are three of my closest friends. They all have like multiple PhDs. And um, so it's uh, Rastin Mirat, um, Frederick Martinez and Anselmo Paolone. So we have two, um, two of these uh, musicians are playing percussion and Anselmo playing bass. Um, and so, yeah, we were at Salle Courteau, which is actually the concert hall attached to École Normale de Musique in Paris. It is a, one of the m most acoustically perfect halls in, in, in the world. And it's it's not a huge hall, but it's just gorgeous. And I was playing this gorgeous Steinway piano and um, Anselmo had a digital recorder and we stuck it under the belly of the piano. So that's what this is. It's a live undoctored recording. Wonderful. Here we go. Welcome back to Roaring Twenties Radio on Soho Radio. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at Roaring Twenties, the number 20S, and the same on Instagram, um, where you'll get um, references and links to everything we mention in the show. Um, I'm joined by Farron Ayeri, who has come and read us a segment for her, her wonderful book. And we've just heard a wonderful song by her performance yes, recorded. Stunning. Yeah. I love that. A round of applause, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely beautiful. beautiful yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. And um, But um, I wanted to come back something to the topic of the book as well and ask you, just personal interest really, what? So you, you, after coming up with the idea for the book, what of the last two and a half years, what was the story that most surprised you as the key story in this story? Of um, I think that what surprised me the most uh, was the degree to which um, people were being excluded and people were being erased and were being invisible. Uh, I mean, I always knew that um, the art world was not, or the museum world or art history was not going to be an equal space. I always knew that, you know, men uh, were dominant in that space, but I really did not realize the abs the sheer degree of erasure that was going on um, I mean, it was really quite staggering up until quite recently. Um, women artists given solo shows in the major museums of the West were a handful. Mm. Uh, really a handful, if you think back maybe a decade ago, a decade and a half, or the turn of the millennium. Yeah. And we are in the new millennium. We are in the 21st century. And for women to, so few women to get solo shows, uh, when you look at it now, it really feels... Um, Quite shocking. And yeah. it's not a case of political correctness on my part. I mean, it's not that I'm being woke. It's just a matter of, as a reporter, looking at a situation. As reporters, we're hardwired to look at what's fair and what's unfair. 
And that situation was just so damned unfair. And same with artists who were non-white. Same yeah. thing, only worse. So yeah. that's what shocked me. Yeah. And one thing, just to go on from that, is also it goes back, doesn't it? With Artemisia. Yeah. And goes back yeah. to the Renaissance where you have these... It's not like these people weren't making work, as you say, yeah. with the Dorsey show. It's like the work was there, the people were there. People actually enjoyed the work yeah. a lot of the time. It's just the canon just discounted them and it yeah. fell by the wayside. Yeah, I think there were art historians who came along like in the 19th and 20th centuries and they, they kind of decided who we would consider great artists and who we wouldn't. Just think about it. I mean, I know he's not a female artist, but Caravaggio was sort of neglected for a very many long yes. years. Caravaggio. Wonderful. <laughs> and the same thing happened to Artemisia. Artemisia was the, the you know, uh, the mm. glory of her day. She had undergone rape as a 17-year-old girl, but then gone on to become an absolutely very famous and very successful painter. But then along come, you know, art historians afterwards and they decide that, no, nah, Artemisia, no, not that interesting. And so they sweep her under the carpet. So it's as you say, and I think the, the point is that canons are constantly evolving. I um, interviewed Daniel Birnbaum, the great curator, uh, in my book, and he says, yeah, canons are constantly evolving and they reflect our times yes exactly and i yeah. think that's something um that's very important um in terms of something that's happening in this country in terms of the kind of culture war that history is a constant reflection and it is an ongoing thing um, yes exactly exactly we need to remember that maybe mm -hmm. but um coming back to you um, you also have a podcast, Culture Blast. Yes, yeah. Culture Blast, all one word. Yes. <laughs> so tell me about that. How did that come about? Well, I mean, I I love um, interviewing people, and I and I interview. I have the great privilege of interviewing phenomenal artists and creative people. And I remember having lunch with a very famous kind of well-known museum director from here, basically. And he said, "I really envy you, you know, for interviewing so and so." And he's He's a really important guy himself. He's like, like getting an hour and a half with David Hockney or an hour and a half with Ai Weiwei or, you know, these people. Like, I wish I was in the room. Or, you know, people kept saying, we wish we were in the room, etc. And I, you know, because it, these would always end up as print stories, the audio of their voice speaking and telling me stories about really their whole life, their career, who they were, how they grew up, etc. This wasn't being heard. And I just thought, I would really like to share this. And when the whole podcast medium came up, I just thought, I mean, I found a friend, first of all, who agreed to produce the show because I couldn't produce it myself, Karina Pierre Rochard. And uh, she said, I want to produce your podcast because I'd given up, you know. And uh, so, so... I've had like five or six guests and they've been luminaries and I and I it's not because it's my show but they really are supremely brilliant people like from Emma Emma Thompson yeah, to Nile Rodgers Yeah Nile Rogers, Nan Golden wow. um Elif Shafak the Turkish novelist and yesterday or the other day I um oh, I recorded that. Wayne McGregor Oh that's exciting Yeah Fabulous. so anyway so that was a little plug. Sorry about that. Oh, no, no plug away. Plug away. plug away. We love it. We yeah. can put a link up. <laughs> but um, but also, and then, but just going on, what is kind of, you say, an hour with these greats, an hour with these people. And I think there's something really interesting about that. There's so much you can say in an hour and there's so much you can glean from yeah. somebody mm -hmm. if you go into their home or even if you Zoom them. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, and uh, the thing is also, as you know, Amarose, being a journalist yourself and a very good one, uh, it's also all in the questions. Yeah. And I spend uh, an inordinate amount of time preparing these shows because these people are extremely well known and they have given hundreds of interviews in their life. And the last thing I want is to hear what I've already heard said twice or even once somewhere else. So I spend a long time preparing and really to get the most out of people, you, as you know, I mean, the questions have to really be, I mean, one of my guests um, told me politely that I was pushy. <laughs> and uh, I apologized. And he said, No, it's okay. But yeah, I mean, if a journalist is not pushy, They're not really a good journalist, to be honest, because, I mean, if you're sitting there, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I hate to say this about other shows, but, you know, you hear the the person says something. So they're a big star and the host says, oh, Mike, that's absolutely amazing. And I just could listen to you all day. And isn't that fantastic? And oh, I just love your new book and oh, and your new movie, you know, and that is just to me, I mean. Well, I mean, it's a love-in and it's it's not really telling you anything new. And that's the thing. But I feel like, I don't know, there are some people who shall remain nameless who do have things that they roll out in interviews. And it's like this challenge. I know if I'm talking to someone like that, I'm like, okay, they're starting the anecdote. You've got to cut them off. Yes. You've got to cut them off. You cannot (laughs) go into that. You've said it 50 times (laughs) and I cannot have this or I'm just going to lose time. And once they start, they don't stop. It's like just flows. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think that is true, researching, understanding people. But I think that's also something that people being interviewed really appreciate because it shows that you care. It shows that you've looked into them and that you're interested in what they do. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think uh, certainly that has been the feedback is when they emerge from that room. Yeah. <laughs> they do say, you know, well, one of them said, you know, you're, you're a bit pushy. <laughs> but... Um, Yeah, no, I think uh, people, yeah, I mean, when you're someone who's that brilliant, you do like being challenged and not, you know, um, not sit in kind of this loving place. And then you say you have your many, many strings to your many bows. But um, so what will you be doing next? Do you think you saying that was the last gig you played? The song (laughs) that we just listened to. Will you be gigging again? Will you be doing more music? Will you be just writing? Well, I mean, I would love to perform music again obviously i mean i'm yeah i'm I'm writing is the main that's the main thing i would love to perform again the problem in london is that i don't know a bass player and percussionist who would want to play with me so if if there are any people out there who do um i'm up for it roll up roll up roll up you heard it here first auditions (laughs) Uh, thank you so much for joining us thank you thanks for telling us about what you do and um sharing your music with us because i thought that was just so wonderful we all enjoyed that so much and thank you for making me feel young and cool (laughs) (laughs) anytime (laughs) all right so this is another weekend by ariel pink